0: Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra rare disorder known as Sedagatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sonath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Today on Raising Rare, we are starting an occasional series about being at the other end of the tunnel. When we spoke to Miguel Sancho and Felicia Foster, we touched on this idea of talking with parents and patients who've been able to live their lives beyond a rare disease. Today we're going to speak with Nicole Horvat, who has cystic fibrosis. Nicole also has had a successful career, has a family, and CF has not held her back as much as you might think.
1: Yeah, it's 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 amazing because the, after talking to Miguel, we were thinking
2: this is you know I was always ca- started contemplating on you know what it would look like for Raga and for my son and. And this this whole idea of, of having a light at the end of the tunnel started popping into our heads. And I, I, I think with this conversation with Nicole, it's just so inspiring because I can imagine, you know, several decades ago, cystic fibrosis was the kind of disease that that my, my son has today, right? It, where there's nothing known about the disease, all the kids with this condition suffered through their lives, and there was uh, basically no one in the biotech industry that was working on it. And it just like looking at how much the disease has transformed itself and how much the, the industry has transformed to, to work on the disease and the fact that, that there, are, there are now approved treatments, like what, several approved treatments now for cystic fibrosis and the fact that it's now the poster child, uh, an inspiration for all of us, it is so inspiring. And, and it's, it's great to have you here, uh, Nicole, because I can, I can truly see the light at the end of the tunnel.
0: So, Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with cystic fibrosis?
1: Sure. Thank you, Kevin.
3: And thank you, Sana, for having me. Cystic fibrosis is genetic. it's So, it's inherited. And uh, you have a gene from the mother and a gene from the father. And when you have two genetic defects, one on each gene, then you have cystic fibrosis. It is a terminal diagnosis. And um, that's changed a lot over time, which we'll get into later. It is primarily impacts the lungs and digestive system, but it affects uh, multiple, multiple systems in the body. The primary impact is that cystic fibrosis affects the cells that produce the mucus, sweat, and the digestive juices throughout your body. So it causes those fluids to become thick and sticky, and then they have impacts on, you know, the multiple organs from there on out. The main symptom people associate with CF is the cough and the repeated lung infections, uh, inability to gain weight, and ultimately either um, death due to respiratory failure or lung transplant.
1: Oh, you said this was a terminal disease. Yeah, that's crazy. Yes, it is, and in fact,
2: and and the and the, and the line to be and the word to be underscored is was right.
1: Was yeah, that that true for most of us who
3: are are fortunate today to have had impact from the treatments over the past 10 years. Unfortunately, um, you know, it it still is terminal for a a great many. And we don't know what what the future holds, since the treatments are so new.
1: So we're, we're eager to have that looking glass into the future.
0: So I think this is a good spot to talk about that, that change from it was a terminal disease to now it's treatable and somewhat manageable. Can you tell us about the timeline for that research journey that's happened um, around your life, not just while you're alive, but even before you were alive?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think that what's really interesting
3: about cystic fibrosis and kind of being at the other end of the curve from where Sanath is at now in his journey with his his family and the disease state is that in 1955, I would say is, is the similar time to where Sanath is at now. That's when the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was formed by a group of concerned parents who wanted to essentially, you know, save their children. Um, So in 1962 is the first date that they had the median predicted age of survival for those children who were diagnosed at that time, and it was 10. Before that, you know, it, it was a handful of years um, with a lot of children dying in infancy before the parents even knew what the children had. And so in 1966 is when they first started launching a patient data registry, and that helped to collect information and, and bring together benchmarking, if you will, from across the US. The 1970s saw that age prediction for people with CF reach teen years. And then that also started um, accrediting centers where parents could go to get treatment and help for their kids. In the 80s, the median prediction of survival was 18 when I was born. And then as you progress from the 80s to the 90s is when we had those beginning early treatments, the late 80s, early 90s, started helping. So I think by the early 90s, people were seeing their 30s. And that was a really big deal. Previously, CF was considered
1: to be a pediatric disease.
0: I can remember when I was a kid in the 60s, seeing commercials. From the cf foundation talking about that and and it was it was a sad story they were putting out there then that that this is a life-shortening illness and we're not quite sure how to treat it yet so then to hear you talking about it in in the 80s and the 90s that it was moving into beyond pediatric it's just it's like the, the story is unfolding it's blossoming as it as as you tell it
1: Yeah, and I've had some interesting experiences that show even within the medical community how
3: quickly things changed. And there was you know, not a lot of awareness with with how quickly those were changing. I remember the first time that I was tested for cystic fibrosis, I was in sixth grade. So uh, circa 1992, and the person that was running that sweat test in the hospital uh, actually
1: told my parents not to worry. Uh, it was going to be negative because I would already be dead, um, and I was 12. Wow. Wow. Um, I can't imagine what your parents would have gone through when they when they when they heard it
2: to be positive. Wow, that's crazy.
1: Well, we'll get to that later because it
3: actually wasn't positive. So uh, interesting, interesting story there. I was tested four times, and I wasn't actually diagnosed until I was 21. Most uh, children with CF are diagnosed in infancy, or at least by five. So it's very atypical.
2: It's the classic diagnostic odyssey of 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 any of these, of, of any of these rare diseases. But this this one, 20 years, is way too long.
1: So the diagnostic odyssey, Sanath. I'm glad
3: that you mentioned that. You know, as as you're well aware now, um, unfortunately, too many parents and patients still struggle with that my diagnostic odyssey lasted 21 years. And so I saw multiple doctors, multiple therapists. I was tested in middle school, like I mentioned initially, and the gold standard was the sweat test. And so at that time, the ranges were a little bit different for diagnosing you as positive of having CF or negative. Mine was borderline, um, not once, not twice, but three times. And so it was determined that I did not have CF and that I should be followed by an asthma and allergy specialist. I guess if you fast forward from middle school on into high school, I had multiple issues, both um, within my respiratory system and my digestive system that increased in complexity and severity over time. But I did not end my diagnostic odyssey until I had to drop out of college. At that point, I couldn't make it up the four flights of stairs to my dorm room without stopping and taking breath. I was losing a lot of weight and I had hemoptysis, which for those of you out there not familiar with it is the unpleasant experience of coughing up blood. So if you haven't gotten a diagnosis by then, that tends to turn a few heads and get you some action. I was previously diagnosed or excuse me, tested genetically. And my mutation, my second mutation that you need was so rare, it wasn't able to be picked up. So 21, my disease had progressed enough that I was diagnosed symptomatically and we weren't able to find that genetic mutation, the second disease causing one over five years later when the technology caught up.
2: Fascinating. I I, I can't even imagine what genetic testing even meant at that point because it's, so long ago, and it's it's probably even before the whole genome project. But yeah, wow. And and just 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 as a parent sitting here um, thinking about this whole thinking about your own your own whole odyssey, I'm just like projecting myself fast forward 30 years from now and just imagining you know what advances we could have had in 30 years that just looking back would have um, would have changed the game for me. Um, so it, it it makes me hopeful and positive that that we will have those advances in the future, hopefully for the kids.
0: So once you. Had been coughing up blood and got people to pay attention. You got the genetic test back. They they weren't telling you what you needed to at the time.
1: Sure. So at that point, I was diagnosed based on
3: symptoms. There are a few things that only happen in the respiratory system um, when you have have CF, and one of those is colonizing a very specific bacteria, all of which I had. So I started with a accredited CF respiratory center. And we did standard of care. Um, and I'll never forget that day. And in fact, i'm I'm friends with the nurse that was in the room that day. And they were apologizing and, you know, saying we know it's very overwhelming. And I was crying tears of relief, right? That finally, someone believed me that I wasn't crazy, and that I had an answer. So I was like, no, this is this is great. This is the best news ever because at that time, I had been, you know, two focused years after I, essentially stopped going to college full time. And and my, my job was pursuing a diagnosis. So the next 10 years, I did standard of care. And so what that meant for me is one to two hours of my day were occupied with treatment, depending on whether I was healthy or sick. And I took a fistful of pills, I was on nebulizers twice a day, two to six of them. And I had chest physical therapy that I should do uh, twice a day. And that was all just to sort of keep infection at bay. When I had infections, that that meant IV antibiotics at home around the clock or
1: hospitalization. And that was one to three times a year for me.
0: That's pretty heavy duty standard of care treatment.
1: Um,
0: I know that the the chest physical therapy you're talking about, that's kind of that pounding that they do and and kind of loosening up. Uh, the the mucus within your within your lungs is that what you're talking about?
3: Yeah, traditionally parents would do the the pounding and rotating positions to help loosen and dislodge the mucus, and that helps prevent infections. And, and at that time, I was diagnosed. Most people were using electronic methods, so you're essentially strapping on a vest that has oscillating air frequencies that that change over the course of a preset treatment time. And there was a lot of improvements in that 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 helped kind of keep your lungs free and clear, if you will, but it was still just trying to lengthen the time in between infections. And so one of the biggest impacts with CF is that really heavy treatment
1: burden that we talked about.
0: So at that time, then there was no actual treatment going on. How did you, you know, where did you go from there? You just, you stayed in that standard of care for a while, I guess. When did you learn about clinical trials and and new treatments coming on?
3: At the time that um, my diagnosis, I was 21. And I remember that the life expectancy that I was told about and that I read about was 32. And so my goal at that point became outliving my life expectancy. So after that, about 10 years on standard of care, I learned about a clinical trial through parents and patients' connections that I had made informed in the online and uh, CF rare disease community. And so eight years ago, I took part of a clinical trial. So as part of that, I, trans- I, uh, excuse me, I traveled from my house in Michigan to Denver, Colorado, uh, National Jewish is number one respiratory clinical center. And so I went back and forth over the course of nine months. One to two times a month, depending on the phase I was in, and that uh, was life changing for me. That that medication uh, changed everything, and that medication is now known as Cilecote, and it was the first CF modulator potentiator. That now ninety percent of CF patients are able to take one of
1: those. Wow, it's fascinating. Third, nearly thirty years after your diagnosis, you had a you had a drug that was like
2: saving? And, you know, how, I, I guess that, that would have reduced, uh, dramatically changed your standard of care, would it?
1: Yeah, actually, um,
3: when I was on the trial, uh, being, you know, working in pharma and, and having the scientific mind, I stood out very aware of, you know, the placebo effect, And so as part of that trial, um, I was there for the first day for testing. I came back in the second day, a little bit more testing. And then you actually are, you're just taking a tablet. So I dosed that first tablet in the office and I had a few hours before my flight, got back on the flight and I was headed home and I knew on the plane that I was on active for that round. We were going to be, we were going to be our own control. So there would be a period of weeks where we were on and a period of weeks where we were off. And so um, I think it was two weeks on, two weeks off, and you had washouts in between. And then you would have a period with three weeks on and three weeks off. So what they were trying to do was see if you reacted, how long would it take? And then there was a section where we were all on and, and knew it. And so that first section of two weeks, I didn't know if I would be getting placebo or active. You know, you start playing double guessing games, but I, I, I knew on the way home, um, and over the next two days, it became very, very apparent. You're essentially doing a clear out of your lungs, um, of a lifetime of accumulation. So it's, uh, it's hard to miss when that, when that purge process starts happening. And in fact, when I went back in two weeks, the, the doctor had said something. I said, "Oh, I, I'm, I'm definitely not on placebo right now." um and you know at the end of the day i I was correct but you know you have to wait and see um so it was very very
1: apparent
2: it's beautiful it's beautiful when that happens right when 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 the the drug that you're hoping would have the treatment has the treatment effect and and in your case in a matter of hours and you can feel it. it it's i think the holy grail
3: yeah i i think a lot of us Felt like it was the holy grail. In fact, the CF patient community nicknamed it "Blue Lightning," a small blue pill. And if you were to Google "Blue Lightning," you'll see uh, tattoos and drawings and and all sorts of things within the CF community pop up. Um, you know, I think that's such a powerful statement that that patients were actually tattooing Blue Lightning on their body, like permanently. That's the sort of impact that it had. And at the time,
1: Dr. Nick, I remember very. Distinctly him saying, you know, the good part is we're seeing a lot of big improvements for people.
3: The bad part is it's gonna feel a bit like a roller coaster with the ups and downs. So you might want to prepare yourself because we were being our own control at that time. And and I, I remember saying, well, I'll either feel better than myself or I'll feel normal. And I'm used to that. So it'll be fine. And I was very, very, very wrong. Because once you've cleared out and not felt like that, within about two days of being on, going off of the medication, you feel like you're developing pneumonia, essentially.
2: oh Wow. Challenging the disease has been through, through your life. And you just, I guess, got stabilized and, and gotten to a point where you were okay with it. And now that, now that you were off the drug, you can actually feel, the, feel how complicated and challenging the disease is in a matter of days it's crazy and it's 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 also i mean it's it's so i feel so happy kind of hearing that story kind of living through that moment in 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 time with you here it, i'm sure it would have been amazing to know that there is a drug in the market that potentially is helping you and you could feel it you, your quest to get yourself extended uh, beyond what beyond the 32 years of of life i think would have you, you did you did you feel that that quest came to an end when you when you were in the clinical trial?
1: Um, You know,
3: I didn't feel like that in the clinical trial because you don't know if you're going to continue. So I I can say that as things were were good, they were really good. So then you start wondering about, well, what happens if I don't get to keep on this? And just to give you a, a view of what that's like, this medication for me, it replaced all other treatments, the nebulizers, the physical therapy, shots, pills. All I do now is take a couple of tablets. And the result is, you know, nothing short of miraculous. Since that first dose, I've had no incidence of pneumonia, no lung infection, zero hospitalization, and no IV antibiotic. So you start wondering, right, If if I have to go off of this, what's going to happen? And I was very thankful that there was a 21-month open rollover. And so it, it really wasn't until I confirmed that 21-month rollover that I had a sigh of relief, but I I didn't feel confident in the permanent life change until we got that approval. Because otherwise you're using off-label and, and, you know, there's
1: risk and jeopardy and and a level of constant worry with that. And so it's just fantastic to hear the scientific side of that. You you know, following the placebo
0: versus active treatment and being able to feel it and being a scientist myself and knowing, and just having watched the guys who put the helicopter up on Mars, when you get that data back that says it worked, it worked, we got something. It's just such a a thrill. So was that it though? Or are you still on that medication? Has there been more progress even since then?
1: You know,
3: there's been so much more progress since then. It's amazing. And, you know, it, it really is the textbook scenario that you would want. So eight years ago, I started the clinical trial and um, I've been on the medication other than washout full time since then. Three years ago, I started a next generation modulator called Symdico. Um, so, so Kalydeco has one active ingredient. And with all of the change that made, Syndico made additional changes for me. And then this year, I started the third generation, if you can believe it, called Tricafta. It's a triple combo is what it's known as. And there's three active ingredients. And so I just finished my third month of that. And starting out, I, I really was interested to know if I would have any additional impact. Is, is there anything better, right? Um, so prior to taking that triple combo, you would not know as a physician that I had CF unless I told you, so I could pass the sweat test. You could listen to my lungs. They were clear. I would get a little bit of clearing of the throat or mucus tiny bit early in the morning. And it was kind of like, if you have allergies that, that, that would, I would say it was, you know, very minimal, um, not atypical for a person with asthma and allergies. And now I have nothing. You know, if I don't have allergies going on, I have no clearing, I have no mucus. And one of the things they normally do with cystic fibrosis patients is have you cough up mucus, they send it away and they test that to see what bacteria are growing in it. And I can't do that anymore. They have to swab the back, my throat. It's really, for anyone that understands the CF burden out there, it, it really is miraculous to not be able to.
1: Cough anything up. That is pretty striking, to be almost, you know, overtreated, Right? Can't even do the normal
0: uh, cough up of mucus that I want to do when they, when they want me to do it.
3: Yeah, and what a, what a beautiful thing to have to talk about, right? Especially the surgery in the morning. But I think it's important for patients to understand and know the big change that it had, and now with the triple combo approval, 90% of F patients are able to have a treatment. And it's worth mentioning that not everyone has the same impact. It depends. And that's why the race is so important. It depends on where you were at in your disease progression when you start taking those treatments. So it will be really interesting to see for, for young patients that start on these treatments, you know, as young as two years of age, what their disease progression and outlook on life looks like very hopeful, but because I was able to be at a fairly healthy place and the medication worked so well for me. Um, you know, I still know
1: I have CF, I still have impacts, but it's not something you you would write home about. Wow. It just it's a great story. It's a great story. And it you had like grown up
0: as the as the drugs are growing up. And, and you mentioned a couple times how the life expectancy kept changing. And, and it, as I read the information you gave us before, it was like, yeah, every time you reached an age, it was like, oh, nope, the median age has, has outrun me. Um, And that's what you want to see, right? We all want to see that. We want to see life expectancy always be a few years older than we are. Let's talk a little bit about your professional career. What do you do today? And what do you want to do with all this experience you've gained?
3: So I uh, initially was going to medical school because I figured if no one was going to diagnose me, I'd do it myself. Um, and so it was a particularly hard blow to have to drop out of college due to my disease progression, which at that time I was undiagnosed. So I thought about you know, what I really wanted to do. And at that point, um, the opportunities available to me, I, I thought pharma was something that really held a lot of power. I knew it probably wasn't going to be possible for me to be a physician and treat patients with the issues that I had going on. And and so I had already worked in pharma before I started the clinical trial, but I have to say it really opened my eyes to the impact that we have and have the potential to have on patients. And so coming out of that clinical trial, I really wanted for other patients to have a positive experience with treatment like I had but I also wanted them to not have some of the really negative clinical trial experiences that I had. And so my life goal became, you know, how can I use these experiences, both positive and negative, to help improve the health of others and particularly around the rare disease community. So today I try to combine my professional patient experience with my industry knowledge from working um, in pharma for almost 20 years. And I think we're poised at an amazing point in time where I can use that to advance the patient centricity movement and improve others' health and their healthcare experience and really help pharma become poised to be patient centric than we've
1: ever been.
0: And you also do some advocacy work outside of your your internal advocacy at at pharma?
1: Yeah,
3: um, I'm a member of the Rare Advocacy Network in my home state, and we're hoping to get a division within the health and human sector. So I've done some lobbying and and work for that. Our first bill didn't go through, but I think that the partnerships we have with NOR, they have a great model to help us establish a rare committee that can help advise on healthcare and um, bills for those in the legislature. So I'm working with that. Um, I I do some speaking. Um, I think that there's power in in our personal walk and journey, which I was really naive to. And I had some friends and colleagues that helped open my eyes just to help people see that sharing their story helps people to connect to the impact that they can have. And it motivates them to ask what they can do and, and what are those next steps. So I really enjoy personal advocacy um outside of, of you know my professional role and i think there's a lot of power in government and to get civic engagement around these issues
2: sharing your story is 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 critical um that's that's what i've, I've, I've learned through these years and now hearing your story has given me a, a very different perspective on on what what these drugs could potentially do and i, I think every everyone is going to take a take a different you know take away from from your story but I think continuing to share your story makes a huge impact. So thank you for doing that.
3: Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I think what's really powerful about looking back is that this story would not be possible if it wasn't for that group of parents in the 50s that said, you know, what can we do? Let's come together. And if you look at the CF Foundation's history and where they were, you know, when the gene was discovered. And then 10 years later, they felt like they weren't making enough progress. And so they really went to a venture philanthropy model of directly funding some of those research. And eventually those partnerships led to trials with what, you know, now known as Vertex. So I think that there's a really interesting piece of history there with the role of parents and fundraising, advocacy, taking a very innovative model on partnering with pharma, and eventually uh, life-changing research. And I'm just so thankful to be present and still here to be a part of that moment in history. And that's really what I want for for so many others in our rare disease community. So, um, anywhere that patients, rare disease, clinical trials, and, and
1: innovation you know intersect, that, that's my passion.
0: So last question here, what advice do you have for Sanath and parents like him to help them influence the research that's being done and, as you said, influence the, the policy that's, that's being put in place around rare disease?
3: Well, looking at what sanas already done, I would say he's there and beyond, because I think that it's storytelling, sharing your story, making connections with others, educating yourself on the industry and the opportunities that are out there, and then just trying to take the next best step, right? Um, and, and I think that there's so many parents, patients, and groups out there doing that. So it's really, what can we do as a next best step to work together and to advance those relationships and those partnerships.
2: That's amazing. Yep yeah, it's it, it, it's it's the network and the connections that ultimately matter. Um, I've, uh, I've 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 gone through this journey and I think it all boils boils down to the person, the people you know, and uh, and what those people can do for you and for the for the greater good. So thank you for the advice.
0: Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks. Empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare.